It's good to be here sharing God's word with you this morning, and I want to welcome our visitors uh, who have been here for the first time or just who have come back after a while. It's good to see you here, and I, I hope that you get a blessing from today's word. And I don't mean a blessing from the point of view that you'll feel good about yourself, because my hope is that you'll probably feel bad about yourself, and I'll, I'll challenge you to live more for Christ. That's my hope. My hope is that you'll take God's seed, God's word into your heart, and you will leave these doors different than when you walked in. And that is the, uh, the power of God's word as well. And if you have your Bibles, turn with me this morning to Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. And we'll continue our look at the Sermon on the Mount this morning. And we'll read to verse 32. <clears throat> Let's read together. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her, hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out, and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. If the right hand offend thee, cut it off, and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. It hath been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you, that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. Let's, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer before we open up this word. Father, we just thank you once again for your goodness, and we thank you for the blessing of your word. <clears throat> we thank you for the excellency of it, and we thank you for its power that is able to discern the thoughts and intents of the heart. And we just pray this morning that our hearts would be open fully to your truth, that we would allow that sword to penetrate deep within us, Lord, to reveal that which is inside of us, Lord, that we might forsake it, or Lord, or rejoice in it. And we just ask that, uh, Father, that uh, your Holy Spirit will be working and teaching us even now, Father, as we uh, seek to understand you more fully and understand your ways. Father, if there is any here this morning that doesn't know our Lord and our Saviour, Jesus Christ, I pray that even now that they would be seeking to know him and understand their lost state. I ask that you bless me now as I attempt to share this word with my brothers and sisters here. And I ask that the name of our Lord and our Saviour, Jesus Christ, would be lifted up. In his name we pray. Amen. Brother Ron Comfort, most of you will be familiar with him. He was at the MBF, tells a story of a particular woman who married, got married to a particular man. And this man wrote her in order for him to be satisfied as a husband, he wrote her a set of rules that he would like for her to follow on a daily basis. And these rules were such as things such as, you know, wake up five o'clock in the morning, you know, clean the house, make my breakfast, do all these different things. Okay? In the course of time, she accepted those rules and she began to, to fulfill those rules day by day by day. But in the course of time, <clears throat> she began to look forward to the evenings more than she did the mornings. She began to look forward to going to bed 
and going to sleep rather than waking up to a new day. And as it happened, uh, a while later, he, uh, he passed away. And she didn't shed many tears for him, apparently. But soon after, when his body had gotten a bit cold, I suppose, a man approached her who was an acquaintance of theirs and asked her out on a date. And she got to know this man. And she absolutely adored him. And they got married. And she loved it. Life was absolute bliss. She looked forward to waking up in the morning and she'd give him a hug and a kiss and, and when he got home at night she'd look forward to when he got back <clears throat> and she loved every minute of it. And one day she sat down and uh, she found that list that was written for her. And she opened up the list and she started to laugh and smile as she read through the list. And you know why she laughed and she smiled? Because as she went through that list, what she was doing for her first husband, she was now doing for her second husband. The difference was, she was now doing it because she loved him, not because she was forced to. That was the difference between love, which produces fruit and obedience, and not obedience, which doesn't produce love. We started, uh, well, we didn't start last week, but the last few weeks we've been looking at Jesus beginning to explain five specific laws in the uh, Sermon on the Mount and how our righteousness needed to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, and he began to outline this whole thing. <clears throat> and he basically, the, the moral of last message was if you hate your brother... Or if you're angry with your brother, uh, God sees it as guilty almost as murder. And the, the moral of that, that story or that particular uh, law was that, that murder begins in the heart. And God judges the heart before any physical act ever takes place. And that it's better for you to live by grace and love, which produces the opposite effect of that, rather than to try to obey the law. And this is what I'm hoping that we'll, we'll understand by the end of this message today. Is that Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. You don't keep the commands in order to produce love. It's the other way around, you see. Love begins first. And love is a choice. And so today we'll be looking at marriage. But we'll be looking at something which is the exact opposite of marriage. Which is adultery. And adultery is the breakdown is the, the betrayal of that trust that takes place in marriage. And I'm hoping that you'll, uh, you'll go away from this challenge to live lives that are faithful and true. And that, that faithfulness and trueness and purity should first be with the Lord and then with people. So Jesus had just finished explaining the first of five commandments to his hearers, outlining the sin of murder. And in doing so, he, he linked the physical act of anger that arose in a person's heart for his brother or sister. And then he explained that oh, basically that, that anger is the same anger that leads to hatred and then the physical act of murder. And John the Apostle tells us in his, uh, his epistles that anger or hatred of a brother is the same thing as murder. 
He who hates his brother, God already judges as a murderer. In the same vein, now he takes a look at another big issue in our society. As it was in, in Jesus' day, the wrong view and abuse of sex. And once again, we'll, we'll see today that Jesus takes it further than just a physical act of adultery and drills down to the real origin of where that sin comes from, and that's the heart. And these are still two of our greatest problems in society. You see, our prisons are full of people who exact, extract a violence on one another, who are violent towards one another and end up killing each other. So we fill up our prisons with people who, who do those sorts of things. The difference with this one over here, although it's a, a bigger problem in our society, unfaithfulness and fornication is a much bigger problem in our society. The problem is with our society, it actually has shifted a gear and is condoning it now rather than rejecting it. You see, for thousands of years, thousands, adultery was against the law in most societies. But not anymore. So no one is in prison these days for committing adultery. But that's a change in our society. And that's something that we will have to deal with because sex and, and that sort of uh, thing that are associated with, with, uh, with sex are often abused, not just from Hollywood, because we often hear about the way Hollywood portrays love and marriage and, and those sorts of things in a the totally wrong way. We shouldn't get our views about sex and marriage and, and, and those sorts of things from either Hollywood or advertisements or TVs or books or anything else. What love and fidelity and faithfulness and marriage and, and sex are all about is explained to us in one place. And that's God's word. And if there's any deviation from that, we need to be very careful because there are a multitude of broken lives. Children without fathers and mothers destruction of families and relationships because of the flippant way that people actually treat this thing. Our society takes adultery very lightly. But to God, it's always been a serious offence and it still is. God doesn't change. What he saw as an offence thousands of years ago is still an offence to him today. And he promises to judge those people who are, commit adultery, in fact, any fornication. And fornic I'll explain to you what the difference between those two terms are in a minute. But 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. God will bring to judgment everyone who commits these things. And the Old Testament is full of examples of these things. Full of, of the abuse of the image that God has cre created in himself in man. From Lot's daughters and the sin they committed with their father. To Lamech taking multiple wives. 
to the Israelites reveling at the bottom of the mountain, to Samson's indiscretions, to King David's fornications, and so on and so on. The Bible is full, is a history of how man has failed to recognise how important his temple is, of how important purity is, and how seriously God takes it. Adultery and the sins associated with sex outside of marriage have plagued mankind for millennia. Now, strictly speaking, let me explain to you what adultery is. Strictly speaking, adultery is the act of sexual intercourse with a person other than your own spouse. So if you're married, any type of sexual intercourse other than your own spouse is adultery in God's eyes. In our day and age, we call this cheating on your partner. Cheating. Which people understand what that means. In God's economy, though, the only partner God considers a true partner is the one that you have made a lifelong commitment to in the form of a marriage vow. You see, deciding to live together for a time and then after you get sick of each other, move to the next partner, God doesn't see that as a marriage. Marriage is a covenant, a mutual promise before God, regardless of whether you are religious or not. The promise you make to the other individual, that's why God recognises every marriage and every religion. And marriage has been around since day one. God recognises every marriage, even if you're not a Christian, as a valid marriage. Because the promise you make to the other person is witnessed by God. He's the witness and he accepts that marriage. Sex is not that bond. Adultery breaks that covenant and destroys the promise. This destruction comes not only from the act, but the deceit that has to underlie the act. You see, every adulterer has to cover things up. Every person who commits fornication in one way or the other is high, has to hide something. You know, When they have a casual conversation with someone, they have to be thinking in their minds, what do I say here without getting myself in trouble? Every adulterer must cover up his or her act in some way or another. And even non-religious and unmarried people understand this. In the New Testament, we often hear a prohibition against fornication, though. Not necessarily adultery. Although adultery is mentioned a number of times, fornication seems to be the, the big one that's mentioned. Now, the meaning of fornication is broader than adultery. Not less, more. In adultery, the sin is committed while you are in a marriage covenant. In fornication, it includes not only this, but every sexual act committed outside the bond of marriage. So whether you are or you aren't, any sexual act committed outside of a proper union between man and wife is called fornication. So two people unmarried, engaged in sexual activity, is fornication in God's eyes. And he sees it as serious as two people who are married and one cheats on the other one. That's how serious it is to God. And the prohibition against adultery, as with fornication, by the Lord is absolute. And when I say absolute, it absolutely applies in every situation. And there is no reason or excuse a person has to say, oh, I was forced into it, or oh, I did it because my partner neglected me, or I'm not being fulfilled, or whatever, whatever excuses people give. 
God does not allow any reason for the act of adultery. People may offer excuses, but God doesn't accept them. And just like the case with murder, Jesus was surrounded by people in his days, and we still are surrounded by people in our days, who regard themselves as sexually pure simply because they haven't engaged in the physical act. But Jesus points out rightly that it's not the physical act that defiles a person, but what's already existing in here. And people may not have indulged in the physical act, but when a man looks and follows a woman with his eyes, lusting after her and allowing his imagination to run wild about her, Jesus says that's already adultery committed in the heart. And no, it's not just restricted to men. This includes women. And women have another, another problem as well, because our society encourages women to dress in ways that encourage men to commit that act within their heart. Types of clothes that are so revealing that a man is automatically taken there and he has to be stronger to pull his eyes away. The Bible puts as much blame on a person being a stumbling block to someone else as it does the actual person who commits the actual sin. The person who is the cause of the sin is actually seen by God as a sinner themselves. Our society is more than happy to accept the use of sexuality of the human body in advertising, in promotions, in every type of way, because they know it sells. Advertisers know the inherent weakness in people and they use that weakness against them. The accessibility of pornography in our society, in most societies around the world, has corrupted many of our young people. And once you get corrupted, you can't change it. Fornication and adultery is a bit like when you kill someone. You can't change that. You have to live with it the rest of your life. When you lose your purity, you can't ever get it back. Whichever way we see sin, or this particular sin though, the Bible says that God hates it because it destroys, it destroys families, it destroys children, it destroys trust, it destroys relationships. All the very things that God loves, this thing wipes away. Let's go to these first two verses. Matthew 5.27 says, You have heard that it was said of them of old time that thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Jesus taught very differently to what the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the lawyers were teaching in his day. He basically said that one does not have to commit the act of adultery to be guilty of adultery. One is just as guilty when one looks at a woman to lust after her. And not looking as in just looking, because it's not a sin to look, but it's a sin to actually start imagining. You might look at a beautiful face and admire a beautiful face. But if your imagination starts running wild with you and your heart starts being deceived, then it becomes a sin. 
And to lust means to have a strong desire for, to possess. A person may look at another woman to admire, but may not be guilty of lust. The world may try to convince us that God has somehow changed his mind on these views and God has somehow made, made his view more lax and more easy in our day, but that's not true. God has not changed his view on adultery. Just as the, the command not to kill was already condemned by God when there's anger in the heart toward another person, so too Jesus reveals that the basic cause of adultery is a problem with the heart. And that problem has been present from the beginning with man as he has distorted the image of God in himself and others. Matthew chapter 15, verse 19 says, For out of the heart proceed evil, murder, evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness and blasphemies. Now Jesus is once again going to drill right down to this thing. And instead of, instead of looking at a superficial reading of this law, he's going to reveal and allow God's word and the, the blade of God's word to start cutting deep into people's lives. That's what he was doing on the Sermon on the Mount. While they were there busy justifying themselves in front of everyone, Jesus saying, ha, 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 before you start justifying yourself, I want you to consider something here. I want you to understand what this law is really saying about you. And it's interesting. The way that God is able to judge the heart of an individual and pronounce them guilty even before they've committed the act. God is able to pronounce you guilty even before you've done anything. Before Cain murdered his brother, God already warned Cain and said, sin's lying at the front of your door. He's waiting to enter into your heart. And Cain gave in. When God judged Satan, or Lucifer, as he's also called in the Bible, had Lucifer done anything? Ever thought about that? Had Lucifer done anything? Had the rebellion actually occurred? The Bible doesn't say that. Let me read you a couple of passages. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12 says, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground in which they weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart... I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell into the sides of the pit. He was judged because he was imagining in his heart that he could ascend and be like God himself. And God saw his heart and judged it. And the same thing happens in Ezekiel. Ezekiel, there's a, there's a passage in Ezekiel that speaks about the, the prince of Tyre, the king of the prince, the king of Tyre. And listen to what it says about the king of Tyre. And this is very, very symbolic of, of who this person, of, uh, of someone we know. He speaks, he's speaking about the king of Tyre, but the language that's used is really referring to someone else. And it becomes very clear that it's talking about Satan. And it says there, Thou art the anointed cherub, that's angel, that covereth. I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou wast created till iniquity was found in thee. By the multitudes of thy merchandise, they have filled the midst of thee with violence, and thou hast sinned. Therefore I will cast thee as profane out of the mountain of God, I will destroy thee, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. 
Thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. But I will cast thee to the ground. I will lay thee before kings that they may behold thee. He, his imagination, he allowed pride and his own beauty to actually corrupt his own wisdom and began to imagine things in his heart that were not rightfully his. You see, he was guilty of pride, but he was guilty of coveting. He coveted God's throne. And God saw, before any rebellion took place, God saw what was in his heart already and judged him. And the same way God judges the individual. You see, there's nothing you can hide from God. Just as God is able to judge Satan before he had done anything, so too God can see within your heart right at this moment. He can see every hidden thought, every silent word you've ever spoken. He knows the very depth of your heart as if he was opening a book and it was written in bold black ink. This is always true. We need to be careful. We need to be wise. We need to not imagine in, our, in ourselves that somehow God doesn't see certain things that we do. Or God doesn't understand certain thoughts that we have. Or God doesn't see what's lying in here. Because God knows everything. And the Bible says that he, he won't just bring into account every idle word, but he has already judged the heart. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. Exodus chapter 20, verse How can God judge the heart? And you might say, well, from the, from the Ten Commandments, God doesn't judge the heart. God's talking about physical things that people do. You know, thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt do this, that, or the other. But look at the very last commandment that God gives, and it says, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbour's. Now let me ask you a question. How does God judge coveting? If he doesn't see the heart. He sees the heart. And that's what the Apostle Paul says, slew me. Because when, when I got to that particular law, I realised that I was a lawbreaker in every way. Because you may have not have killed someone physically, but in your heart, you may have wanted someone to have killed them. You may have wished that God could have gotten rid of them somehow. You may not have committed adultery, but you might have looked at someone and thought, mm, I want that. And you weren't entitled to it. And this is what God judges. Now, Job is considered, Job, the book of Job is considered one of the oldest books in the Bible. There are even passages in Job that, that speak of animals that can only be described as dinosaurs who are walking around in Job's days and describes them. 
It is one of the oldest books. And Job, even back then, even before the law was given, even before Moses came down from Mount Sinai, Job says something incredible. Turn to Job chapter 31. And I want, to, I want you to understand that this is and has been going on for a very, very long time. But the way we are to deal with it is probably the same way that Job dealt with it. Job chapter 31, verse 1. And Job says here, look at this. Now Jesus says, if, you're, if you follow a woman with your eyes to lust after her, you've committed adultery in your heart already. Look what Job says. Job had never heard Jesus preaching. This is the beauty of God's word because it always fits together so beautifully. Job says, I made a covenant with mine eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid? Job knew already that's where, he would, that's where he could fall. By lusting after someone and imagining something within his heart. And so Job made an agreement with his eyes. Now that might sound a bit strange to you. But basically it means, Job says, I will never actively look at a woman to lust after her. I will control where I look. It's a good, that's a good covenant to make. Then he says, why should I look upon a maid, which could be another man's wife? Verse 2. For what portion of God is there from above? And what inheritance of the Almighty from on high? Is not destruction to the wicked and a strange punishment to the workers of iniquity? Doth not he see my ways and count all my steps? The answer is yes, Job. And, you, and he knew it. God's, God, he knew God sees all, saw all of his ways, regardless of whether it was in the daylight, at night, in, in, in a room or out in the open. God saw everything that he did. And not just that, he counts all his steps. He knew every step that he took to where he would go. Job knew that answer. Verse 5. If I have walked with vanity, or if my foot hath hasted to deceit, what's he talking about now? Let me be weighed in an even balance that God might know mine integrity. If my step hath turned out of the way and mine heart walked after mine eyes, and if any blot hath cleaved to mine hands, then let me sow and let another eat, yet let my offspring be rooted out. If mine heart hath been deceived by a woman, or if I've laid wait at my neighbor's door. You see what he's talking about? He says, he, Job confidently said he'd never done anything like that. He was confessing his innocence. He was pleading his case before his friends who had gone to help him, apparently. And he was saying, I've never done that. I've never followed a woman with mine eyes. I've never, my feet have never then followed her around for, to find out where she lives. And he says, even to the point, he goes, I've never like waited, like possibly he'd seen other men do, wait until the husband left home. So he could be involved in some sort of immoral act. Job knew the sins of his, of his day. He knew what was going on already and he knew what he had to do to control himself in that area. And the same sins instead people today. The same thing happens where people imagine they can do all these things covertly. God won't know, but God knows. The lust of the eyes, the heart that has become deceived, and the mind that fills itself with imagination, God sees completely. When these are present, though, and you may not have acted them out, 
the hands and the feet will inevitably follow. Play enough around with it with your mind, keep it long enough in your heart, and eventually the hands and the feet, as, as Job says, will follow. Your feet will walk that track. Think about it enough. Job defends his innocence in this passage and is confident of his conduct. And for a person to be right before God, in a sense, they must do what Job does. Detailed and disciplined in conduct. Meticulous and committed to not being led astray. Focused with both eyes and with his heart in pursuing God. Keeping your eyes on the Lord and not allowing yourself to be distracted by the things of this world that leads you to things such as adultery. Do you have the sort of commitment today? Do you have it? If you compare yourself to Job right now, I'm not going to ask you whether you're innocent or whether you're guilty. My question to you is, are you committed as Job is committed to remaining pure? Even though you've, made, you've done mistakes in the past, and I guess that many would, I guess that almost all have, can you speak with such boldness and clarity today about the purity of your life before God? Can you say that? If not, then you must first understand how much God hates that sin. Because that very sin sent your Saviour to that cross. He had to shed his blood for that sin. So to continue in it is a complete contradiction. Young people, I want to give you a warning today. I want you to understand that if you fall into this type of sin before you get married, that it will haunt you for the rest of your days. It will haunt you. I came out from the world. I wasn't a Christian when I was young. Although my parents loved me and we grew up in a Catholic family, I was involved in a lot of these things before I got saved. I can't say that I was pure. And I know many people who have struggled with sexual sin in their lives because they carried them over from a young age because they failed when they were younger. Don't get, don't get me wrong and, and don't be deceived because God is not mocked here. If you throw away your purity when you were young, you've lost something you can never get back. Never. And you will regret it for the rest of your days. If you allow your heart to follow after impure thoughts and habits, you are more likely to have them stay with you for a long time to come. Do yourself a favour and appreciate, value the purity of your body and what God wants you to do. Appreciate it the same way God appreciates it. Don't think that you can do anything because no one can see your heart or see in the dark. There is one who sees and is there every time. I often have used this, this um, type of analogy for those Christians who find themselves sinning and going to places and, and doing things that, that aren't right. Remember this. The Bible says that God... And the Lord Jesus Christ live in your heart. And it's almost as if he can see out of your eyes. Everywhere you look, everything you hear, 
He hears and he sees because he lives inside you. Let me ask you a question. Uh, my daughter, if you have a, a small child, would you take that small child to somewhere where you know is wrong? Would you do that without feeling guilty about corrupting them? Well, let me ask you a question. Is a precious lamb of God living in your heart today? Because he's innocent. He's innocent. How can I take that which is pure and bring it to a sinful place? There are a multitude of broken lives and families I see around me today. A multitude with burdens and problems. Children left without fathers and mothers. Children growing up with the same sins as their parents because their parents don't care and have been caught up in the cycle of sin and adultery and fornication all their lives and they don't know how to get out of it because they don't know any better. But playing with fornication is like playing with fire. You will be burned. Sometimes I like seeing people that they do that over, the, over a flame and think, ah, oh, it's all good. I know, I know you guys were doing it last night. I'm not using it as an example, by the way. But eventually, you do that long enough, your skin will begin to, to burn. Maybe you'll be distracted and falling completely. That's why God gives such a stern warning. Look at the next two verses Jesus says. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 29, he says, And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right eye hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. Now, is Jesus talking literally here? Am I going to start soaring this hand or that hand? Well, I don't think he's talking literally because you know something? The left eye, if I take out my left eye, my, my, my right eye can still do the same sin, can't it? If I cut one hand off, the other hand will still be on. It's not necessarily that that Jesus is talking about. Jesus is using hyperbole here. But what he is saying is use every possible means to avoid this thing. Every possible way you can, avoid it. Don't allow it to come through your eyes. Because that's where it starts, isn't it? That's why it starts with the eyes first and then the hand. Because if you allow it to come in here long enough, eventually the hand will start, will start wanting to grab something. It'll follow. And he says, avoid it at any cost, at every cost. Take drastic action if you must. And you must to get rid of whatever the natural course of events will tempt you to, will tempt you to sin. And such should be the case with every sin, not just with this one. Don't get me wrong. Every sin should be like this. When you look at sin, you should do everything to avoid being trapped in sin and to fall down that steep ravine. Adultery is a great sin, though. It does a number of things. It defies God. It defies God. Remember I said to you that murder was a bit like stealing last time. Remember I said to you that no one has a right to take another person's life because that life is owned by God, while adultery is the same thing. Adultery is coveting something that isn't yours, and you're giving away something that isn't yours to give. It's owned by God. And God says you're allowed to give it at this particular stage in these circumstances. 
But when a person gets involved in adultery, God is defied. It strikes me as absurd when people say that there, are, there should be no rules in our society for sexual morality, as if it doesn't make any difference to anyone and it won't cause any consequence down the road. Doesn't nature teach us that everything we do has a rule that governs it or rules that govern it? Everything that happens in nature, everything that God has created has rules. A train can't run outside of the tracks. A road that's made for the for the a car that's made for the road can't run off a road. A tree needs sunlight to grow. A river must flow to the sea. All objects must fall down. Electric opposite electric charges always attract. There are rules and regulations in all of nature and all of life. And it's absurd to think that when God made the that made human beings, that there weren't rules and regulations to follow for that person to work properly. It's a bit like saying, I'm going to buy a new car, I've got the car manual that comes with it, that tells me when I have to service and what I have to do, and just disregard it and assume the car is going to run okay. The car won't run okay. And when you've, you've burnt all your oil and your, your engine falls apart, you bring it back to the thing and say, oh, what's gone wrong over here? I don't understand. And I said, well, have you gone and had it serviced? Well, no. I didn't think that I need to follow that rule book. Sorry, sir, your warrant is void. The same thing with life. The same thing with the rules and regulations put, God puts down. These aren't rules and regulations to hurt us. These are rules and regulations to help us live. Why wouldn't the God of the universe give us boundaries and rules in order to, for us to operate to our potential as human beings? So it is with adultery and fornication. It's not Hollywood that sets the standards, that sets the rules for how people should live with each other. It's God who sets the standard because he's the one who made us. And God wants one man and one woman joined for a lifetime in mutual love and faithfulness. That's God's design. And in that design, children grow up in wonderful homes. They see stability. But if there's no stability, the children grow up. How do they grow up? I wonder. The other thing it does, it destroys families. Adultery and fornication cause tremendous agony. And it's not glamorous. It's not, it's not nice. Everyone loses in this thing. It destroys friendships, marriages, families, and the lives of many children. There's a, there's a proverb that says, that whosoever committeth adultery with a woman lacketh understanding. True. And he that doeth destroyeth his own soul. So you're actually killing yourself at the same time. A wound and and dishonour shall he get, and his reproach shall not be wiped away. For jealousy is the rage of a man, therefore he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will not regard in ransom, neither he will rest content, though he giveth many gifts. Now what's this talking about here? It's saying that if a man decides to have a relationship with another man's wife, be ready for retribution. And be ready for your reputation to be destroyed, for your, your own families to be destroyed, and then your children to suffer as well. And that's what adultery does. It defiles marriage. Marriage should be the purest thing in this world. It makes a mockery of the oath that was made to, to faithfulness and trust. And finally, it degrades people. In order to for someone to commit adultery or fornication, for that matter, 
they must see the other person as an object, as an object, as an object of lust to be used. And then when you're sick and tired of them, like a toy or some, some other object, you throw it away and go to the next one. Do you understand the problem here? In our society, that's the general rule. That people live with someone, they extract as much as they like out of them, then when they get sick and tired of them, they discard them and move to the next one. That's not God's rule. That's not God's plan. God's plan is that people would see each other for who they are. Beings created in the image of God. When you commit fornication, you're slowly killing yourself as well as the relationships around you. That's why Paul warns the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. Flee fornication. Run as fast as you can. Every sin that a man doeth is outside or without the body. But he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. What? Know you not that your body is a temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which you have and you are not your own? For you are brought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit which are God's. See it for the evil that it is. Understand it from God's perspective. It's evil. There is nothing good that can come from it. It will always end in disaster and broken relationships. So the best thing to do is to follow God's advice and run away from it. Run away. Now in contrast, look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 31. He says, It had been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced shall commit adultery. Now, we live in an age of easy divorce. Easy divorce. Sometimes it only takes one person to say, I want a divorce, done. Signed, sealed, delivered. I'm not happy with you anymore. I don't like you anymore. What does God think about divorce, though? The Bible says that he hates it. He hates divorce. Because once again, it's broken relationships. What was his view of divorce in the Old Testament? Well, it's the same as it is now. God hates divorce. God doesn't want the breakup of marriages. But Jesus gives one excuse here for divorce, one reason, and that's fornication. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 24. Deuteronomy chapter 24. Because Jesus is actually quoting something here. Where it says, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. Jesus is explaining something that went on in the Old Testament. And it's found in Deuteronomy chapter 24. It says, When a man... Verse 1, sorry. When a man had taken a wife and married her, and it come to pass that she find no favour in his eyes because he hath found some uncleanness in her, then let him write her a bill of divorcement and give it in her hand and send her out of his house. And when she is departed out of his house, she may go and be another man's wife. And let the latter husband hate her and write her a bill of divorcement 
and giveth it to her in her hand, and sendeth her out of his house, or if the latter husband die, which took her to be his wife, her former husband, which sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife. After that, she is defiled. For that is abomination before the Lord, and thou shalt not cause the land to sin, which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance. Now, what is going on over here? And what was happening in Jesus' day, that Jesus would refer to this particular law and say, you're abusing it. Well, they were abusing it, because this passage only gives reason, really, of fornication, uncleanness in her. But the people of Jesus' day were getting divorced for every type of reason, the same thing that they were doing, they're doing today. They're getting, they're getting divorced for any reason at all. And Jesus is saying it's not right. Because once you send that, that woman away with a certificate in her hand, she'll enter into another relationship. Now, if she wasn't committing adultery first, what does that then cause her to do? commits adultery because God hasn't accepted the first reason for divorce if I got rid of my wife because she didn't cook very well well God still sees her as married to me so if I send her away with that the next guy she gets married to someone sorry Miriam you cook very well <laughs> I like my, I like my wife's cooking <laughs> we often used to we often used to, um, to joke with each other as we were over the past few years and you know we find out you know when you when you get married to someone and you find out the, the strange little things that they do you know what I mean like I won't have to explain them all you guys know you know what I mean and then it's, it's like we, we'd say stuff why did she divorce him oh because he used to burp after his meal you know we'd make up stuff like that anyway it's just our we're a bit strange to What was happening, though, was men were writing divorce papers for their wives, sending them out. Okay? They were getting remarried again. And in God's eyes, that wasn't really a divorce. That wasn't genuine. Because in God's eyes, the only genuine, the real reason is, is actually fornication. And divorce in those days was like today. People were divorcing each other for superficial reasons. And these weren't accepted by God. But they were accepted by man. And by giving papers of divorce for any reason, they were opening the door for women to get remarried <coughs> excuse me, to other partners. And God had not really accepted it in the first place. And that was, you might think, that's, hang on a second, Jesus' day, surely they would have been a lot more conservative there would have been a lot more, you know, there would have been a lot stricter about marriage. And Well, you know something? There's a passage where Jesus speaks to a woman at the well. Do you remember that? Right? And it says, this woman says, Sir, give me this water that I'm, I thirst not. And he's, he's sharing the gospel with her and about himself. He's talking about himself to her. Uh, and she said, give me this water so I don't have to keep on coming back to this well. She had no idea what he was talking about. Right? And Jesus saith unto her, go call thy husband and come hither. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said unto her, thou, thou hast said, well, I have no husband. For thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. 
He knew everything about her already. She had five husbands. What does that tell you? It's just the same. It could have been even a bigger problem than it is today. And this is what I want us to, to, to finally understand. I want to wrap this up now. Because I started off with, a, remember I started with the, the illustration I started off with, the, the woman who loved her husband, the contrast between obeying and not really loving the husband to then having real love for her husband and then, then following through with, that, with that, uh, the, the fruits and the works and things of that nature. Well, part of the problem today with adultery is that people do not recognise the importance and purity of marriage. They don't recognise how beautiful a thing it actually is and that it's so fragile as well. See, So the first thing I wanted you to understand was see it for the evil that God sees adultery as and fornication. The next thing I want you to understand, the way, the way I want you to go away from this, uh, what I want you to understand when you go away is that marriage is a beautiful thing. Weddings are beautiful as it is, but marriage is an absolutely beautiful thing. Um, so... If you begin to see marriage the way God sees marriage, you'll see it as something precious. And you won't want to destroy it. You won't want to corrupt it. Let me ask you a question. If you had in your possession now a 20-carat diamond, okay, which had been expertly polished by the best craftsmen in the world, would you keep it in your pocket as you walked around the streets? No, well, that, something like that is probably worth about $20 million, if not more, okay? This is a, a round sort of figure. You would keep a, tw- uh, a $20 million diamond where? In a safe, guarded. You would make sure that that thing would have the best security possible. Why? Because it's valuable. It's precious. Now, that's the way we should treat our marriages. That's the way we should treat our relationships Why do people treat marriages with the same frivolity as using a diamond like a marble in the middle of the dirt? Because that's how people treat marriages these days. It's like they're playing marbles with diamonds, not realising what they have. It's because they don't see the value of marriage. And our culture has continued to destroy the image of marriage by making it less attractive. People in our culture today make fun of marriage. It's as if people who get married are fools and don't know what they're talking about. They make fun of it. They make it less attractive. And in our society today, they're even trying to redefine what marriage is. Now, along with the, the union of man and a woman for a lifetime commitment, they're redefining that or trying to at the moment. In the Old Testament, God used the image of marriage to describe the unfaithfulness of Israel. Over and over again, he said, I've espoused you to myself. I've taken you to myself. I took you when no one else wanted you, and I I arrayed you with beautiful clothes, and you went out with other men. And he was saying that they had betrayed him when he had been faithful to them all the while. God used that as an example. In the New Testament... God does it again. In the New Testament, marriage is so precious to God that he compares it to the union of his son to the church. That's how beautiful God sees it in his eyes. 
God loves faithfulness. And God has called you into a permanent relationship with his son. And God wants that picture of marriage to infiltrate every other marriage and every other idea that you have in this world because he will never leave you nor forsake you. He will never let you down. He will be faithful to you till the end. That's the picture of a perfect husband whose eyes never wander, who doesn't go chasing after sin. He is perfect in every way. Now, Jesus offers to be your perfect partner. If you're married to your husband, if you're you're a woman that's married to a husband, let me ask you a question. Is he perfect? No, he can't be. Can he fulfill all of your needs? The answer is no. Husbands weren't created to fulfill every need of the wife and wives weren't created to fulfill every need of the husband. But you know who can? The one who keeps the, who's the glue, who keeps the whole thing together. And that's the creator of marriage, the creator of men and women. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And he offers himself in a perfect union with you. You know what's, what's beautiful? You know when the husband... The Bible says when, when two are joined together, let no man put asunder, and that when two are joined together, that they form one. Okay? You know what happened when Jesus came to this earth? You know what he took with him of us? Flesh. Before Jesus came to this earth, he was a spiritual being. No flesh. You know what he's got with him back up in heaven now? Flesh. He has bones. He has hands. He has literal feet with the same scars that he obtained from here when he went up. So he took on. So he was a spiritual being. He came down to this earth, took on our flesh, and he's kept it. And you know what he asks of us now? To take on his spirit. He asks now that we would invite him into our hearts so his spirit can live in this flesh. That is a union. That is two becoming one forever. That is a, a, the most glorious picture that I can, I can understand about what true love is about. Because he gave his life for us, that he might have this union with us. So, this morning, let me put a challenge to you. If you have a problem with sin... If you have a problem with adultery or fornication, confess it immediately. And see that sin for what God says about it as an evil, evil thing that can only lead to pain and misery. And see marriage, whether you're unmarried or not, see it as the beautiful thing that God has intended it to be. If you're not married, keep yourself for marriage. Keep yourself for that special person and then give yourself to them fully when you're married and enjoy your marriage. And if you're married today, appreciate what you have. See your partner for a, as a gift from God. Appreciate them and love them. God hasn't called you to, feel it, to, to obey a whole set of rules. God has called you to love your partner. And love, we know, is a choice, not a feeling. 
And if you're unsaved this morning, you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ and you haven't entered into that, that beautiful union with him, then come and see me directly after the church today. Don't leave these doors before you have settled your eternal security, before you've actually settled your place in heaven. And you know without a shadow of a doubt that today you walk with your Saviour in a relationship that will never end. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father in heaven, we thank you once again for your blessed word. We thank you for its purity. We thank you for the way it reveals our hearts and we thank you that you've given it to us and your spirit continues to work on us. And Lord, I just pray for each and every person here with their head bowed. Father, I pray that you would bless them mightily, that you would help them to see the truth of your word and that they would live it with all boldness and courage. Father, help us to have greater faith. Help us to understand, but even more importantly, help us to live that which we have learned. And help us to be the lights in this world that make a difference to the struggling, to the lost, to the needy, Lord, to those who are in darkness and in chains. Lord, that we might be the example, that they might be free. Help us to redeem this time because the days, these days are evil, Lord. Help us to resist the attacks of Satan in our lives. And Father, preserve our marriages, our relationships and our purity. Help us to live more for you each and every day. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Brother Don, would you come and lead us in the final hymn?